Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. According to Robert Malthus, we should all be dead by now. In 1798, the English scholar wrote a famous essay on human population, and he estimated that after a certain point, a point that he thought would be in his lifetime, the human demand for resources, especially food, would be greater than anything that planet Earth could provide. The result of this upcoming food catastrophe and population catastrophe would be devastation on a biblical scale. We're talking about widespread famine, countless deaths, cats and dogs living together, that kind of thing. Soon, uh, the global scarcity and lack of food would rear its ugly head and the human population would find itself checked, which is a nice way of saying dead a lot. If you're listening to this podcast on the day it comes out, then it's Wednesday, November 25th, 2015, the day before American Thanksgiving. And that's a day when a lot of Americans are going to sit down to a gigantic table filled with more food and calories and gluttony than they actually need. And obviously, we are not all dead. That catastrophe that Malthus predicted, it didn't happen. And so today is part of the story why Malthus, at least in the short term, was maybe wrong. When Malthus was writing in the late 1700s, the world's population was dramatically lower than it is today. So it was under a billion people. Even then, though, he was freaking out about the carrying capacity of planet Earth. Since then, we've increased the total number of humans on this space rock by more than sevenfold. And again, the jury might still be out on whether or not Malthus was right in the long term, but I'm willing to bet that he would have never, ever considered our current version of the planet to be anything that could be accommodated by the laws of nature. Over 7 billion of us live on this watery space rock orbiting a star, and there's enough food for everyone. There is famine. There is malnutrition. But food experts today generally believe that famine is ultimately a problem of distribution, politics, and economics, more so than a problem of actually having enough food on Earth. And one of the reasons why we actually have enough food on Earth right now is because of advances in agriculture during the 20th century. During a time period that is now known as the Green Revolution, and it was headed up by a biologist named Norman Borlaug, a man who, most sources will tell you, possibly saved over a billion lives. Born in 1914, Borlaug grew up in the American Midwest, and in his early upbringing and career, Borlaug went through some of the worst effects of the Great Depression. He saw Dust Bowl people. He saw Dust Bowl people. He saw starvation. He thought that the lack of food in the United States and the hunger in the United States would lead to a breakdown of American society and government, spurred on by his Midwestern agrarian background and by seeing the worst effects of the Great Depression up close. Borlaug, after finishing his work in university, began working for the American Civilian Conservation Corps. After that, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and after that, DuPont. Through it all, he was studying and working with crops, the diseases they got, more effective fertilizers, and ways of breeding crops that would make them more efficient so that growing seasons could be shorter, they would take up less space, and they would feed more people. This was work of Borlaug's that would ultimately change the world. 
In the 1940s, Mexican President Avila Camacho's administration, and yes, there really was a President Camacho, he was called El Presidente Caballero, which is a great nickname, and President Camacho, he was nothing like Terry Cruz's character in Idiocracy. Anyway, in the 1940s, Mexican President Avila Camacho's administration took a look at their country's food security situation, and they were worried. Mexico was, quite simply, not able to feed itself. It was a net importer of grain and other foodstuffs. And the issue of food security is something that countries tend to get antsy about even today. Uh, as much as politicians and business leaders and what have you talk about free trade and globalization, being able to produce one's own food is still a policy pursued by most sovereign states today. They don't want their food supply to be dependent on the whims and tides and waves and weather of sometimes volatile international markets. So, Mexico, 1940s, importing food, they don't want to do that. To solve this problem, the Camacho administration enlisted a team of American and Mexican scientists to find a more effective way to grow wheat and other cereals. Norman Borlaug was among these scientists who headed to Mexico in the 40s. It was during this time that he researched and bred a high-yield, disease-resistant semi-dwarf wheat that could survive in a variety of climates, and also at a variety of elevations. Now, I am not at all scientifically qualified to talk about the particulars of what made Borlaug's wheat so special, but the hardy stalks and the large seeds of this kind of stout, disease-resistant wheat increased Mexican wheat production immensely. Borlaug came to Mexico with several other scientists in 1944. By 1963, so less than 20 years later, Mexican wheat yields were six times what they had been in 44, and the country was now selling its crops. It was exporting wheat as opposed to relying on imports. Borlaug's operations in Mexico, by any metric, were a success. Up next was the Indian subcontinent. Then, as it is today, India and Pakistan, it's one of the most populous areas on Earth. Today, it has over a billion people. And while poverty is still prevalent in India, and definitely prevalent in modern-day Pakistan, today India is doing pretty well. In the early 1960s, though, one of the biggest population centers that this plant has ever seen was gripped by famine. Borlaug arrived in 1965 with 450 tons of his hearty semi-dwarf wheat seed, 200 tons for India, and 250 tons for Pakistan. At that time, also, those two countries, which had so recently been united, were at war over the Kashmir region. This was not an opportune time to try to do any sort of humanitarian work in either country, much less both, but Borlaug and his team did it anyway. Even while the two countries were trying to annihilate each other, he was trying to feed them both. Because of Borlaug's more efficient crops, and also advances in fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, agricultural techniques, a region home to over a quarter of the human race was soon able to feed itself. Pakistan was able to independently produce cereal grains by 1970, and India by 1974. Borlaug did still more work in Southeast Asia, also Africa, 
Also central to his work was what became known as the Borlaug hypothesis. This is kind of a little side note, but it's the idea that increasing the productivity of farmland could act as a check on deforestation and the despoiling of natural areas. If farmers could do more with less land and do more with the land that they already had, then there was less incentive for them to destroy adjoining forest and natural areas to be burned and turned into farms. Norman Borlaug received a Nobel Peace Prize in 1970 uh, for his work in feeding Mexico, the Indian subcontinent, Pakistan, and he would go on to do similar work in Southeast Asia and Africa. He lived out the rest of his days teaching at Texas A&M before dying in 2009 at the age of 95. Robert Malthus would, I think, have been incredulous that any of us survived the 20th century, much less into the 20th century. But even though the world population continued to expand and expand and expand after he wrote his famous essay, Malthus's ideas didn't really go away. So, at the same time that Borlaug was making farming more efficient around the globe, in 1968 there was a Stanford professor named Paul Ehrlich who wrote a book called The Population Bomb, warning of massive demographic explosion in the 1970s, one that would leave millions and millions dead because of famine. To solve this impending problem that Ehrlich predicted, he proposed a variety of solutions, including putting sterilizing agents in food and, I am not making this up, taxing parents for having children. Now, obviously none of those policy proposals were put in place, and the catastrophe that Ehrlich predicted, that didn't happen. But Borlaug himself also echoed some of Malthus's ideas, and a lot of his work was in reaction to his own perception of a Malthusian catastrophe. Here is an excerpt of his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, where Borlaug is saying that, yes, he's done a lot to feed people, but we might actually have some kind of population bomb just around the corner. Quote, The Green Revolution has won a temporary success in man's war against hunger and deprivation. It has given man a breathing space. If fully implemented, the revolution can provide sufficient food for sustenance during the next three decades. But the frightening power of human reproduction must also be curbed. Otherwise, the success of the Green Revolution will be ephemeral only. Most people still fail to comprehend the magnitude and menace of the population monster. Since man is potentially a rational being, however, I am confident that within the next two decades, he will recognize the self-destructive course he steers along the road of irresponsible population growth. Unquote. So there's all this talk from Malthus onward about impending population apocalypse. Too many humans, not enough planet. Nowadays, it seems we might be actually checking human population, though. But it's not because we have woken up and all acted rationally, like what Borlaug said, and it's not because we are sterilizing food or taxing people for having children, like Ehrlich proposed. No. Borlaug and the Green Revolution worked on the supply side of the problem of feeding the world, but just as importantly, humanity has also decreased the rate at which demand grows for resources. The human population, it's still growing, but not at the same rate that Malthus or Ehrlich or even Borlaug thought that it would. And this is really weird for a lot of people. When you look at the 
curve for birth rates in many developed countries, it looks less like a swift upward slope and more like this elongated stretched out S. There is a bit of gradual growth at the start, then there is a lot of growth in the middle, and then the population mostly kind of plateaus out at the top. This is what the graph looks like for countries like the United States, for a lot of European nations, and for Japan. People today, at least in developed countries, are having far, far fewer kids than our ancestors did. And we don't know entirely why this is. This is still a puzzle, but there are lots of hypothesized reasons for this. Birth control is certainly one of them. And social scientists of all sorts like to debate the role that culture and economics play in birth rates in developed countries. To grossly oversimplify things, uh, we once lived in a world where there was a strong material incentive for having kids. You know, you could put them to work. Uh, they would go out and they would make you money. They were a status symbol. They would take care of you when you were all old and stuff. They were perceived as an asset. Now kids are perceived as more of a liability. You have to pay for them. You have to take care of them. Uh, ask any parent who's up all night and has to pay for all their kids' stuff. And I assure you that as rewarding and loving and wonderful as children can be, they are not a material asset. So those incentives exert downward pressure on birth rates. And though the population is still gradually growing, it does not seem to be headed toward a big, dramatic Malthusian catastrophe or an Ehrlich-like population bomb. If anything, some countries like Japan and Russia, they're having to cope now with negative birth rates. They're actually losing people. And this is a weird problem. This is a new and weird problem for a human population to have. It looks like the incentives for lots of people in lots of countries, that might make that Malthusian problem solve itself. Though, the Green Revolution and Norman Borlaug, they also deserve credit for working on the supply side of things. If we were to be going toward a potential population bomb, though, uh, there is another more whimsical solution out there. A Dutch artist named Arnie Hendricks, he has an idea for how we can more efficiently use Earth's resources. He thinks, maybe facetiously, that we should just shrink all the humans on Earth down to roughly the size of a chicken. We'd need far less calories. We'd use less material resources. We wouldn't need to have as big houses or cars or sandwiches. And the only thing we'd have to do was to use Ant-Man technology on 7 billion humans. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Arnie Hendrix's chicken-sized human plan probably isn't going to happen, but I appreciate the sideways thinking that goes into that. So, America, when you sit down this week to eat a gigantic gut-busting meal with your family members this week, spare thought for the massively efficient global agribusiness system that brings all kinds of things to your table. Also, spare a thought to the fact that we have 7 billion humans on Earth and somehow we're able to feed all of them. That should blow your mind. Had Borlaug or some other scientist not dramatically increased food yields in the 20th century, honestly, who knows if we'd have not just Thanksgiving dinner, but any dinner. You might have not been able to afford all the extra calories you're going to chow down on soon. Happy Thanksgiving! Interesting Times is recorded at the studios of X-Ray FM in Portland, 91.1, 107.1, and we are engineered by Arthur Rosato. 
Uh, we are entirely funded by you, the listener, through crowdfunding. So go to interestingtimespodcast.com to do that thing. We're on iTunes. Do give us a review. Leave a comment that helps other people to discover the show. We're also on Stitcher. We are on various forms of social media like Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. My social media name is just the actual name that I have. So I am at Joe Streckert on Twitter, uh, facebook.com slash interesting times with Joe Streckert, and joestreckert.tumblr.com. So follow us on social media. Click the like button. Click the follow button. That kind of thing. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week. Bye. The sun's zooming in Meltdown expected The wheat is going in Engines stop running But I have no fear Cause London is drowning I